Hi everyone, welcome to the Luxury Book Club. Uh, my name's Stephen Walsh. I work at Gosh Comics in Soho and host various events there, including a book club about comics. So I think that's where Emily got the idea that I can just talk about things without mentioning pictures. Um, we've got uh, a panel here tonight that uh, are fans of Patrick Hamilton and experts of Patrick Hamilton in certain ways, or, you know, experts on things that will impact on your appreciation of the work of Patrick Hamilton. So we've got Mark Farrelly at the far end there. Mark's a writer and actor who wrote and performed the solo show The Silence of Snow, The Life of Patrick Hamilton, and has undertaken similar projects on the lives of Quentin Crisp and Frankie Howard. In the centre, we've got Dr Anne Witchard, and a senior lecturer in English Literature at the University of Westminster, where, among other things, she teaches a module on the London Vortex, examining novels from the 20th century to the present day that are written about or set in London. And this is Declan Ryan. Declan is a favoured new poet and the editor of Days, and Ro Days of Roses, a poetry, prose and music collective that presents live shows and produces anthologies of their work. He's also an editor at Ambit and teaches at King's College London, where he recently launched Wild Court, a new online poetry journal. So I think, Mark, if we start with you, just to give us uh, a grounding, a general idea about the life of Patrick Hamilton, what, what appealed to you to, in Hamilton as a subject to, to write about and perform about? What appealed to me, I suppose, I wrote a solo play about Patrick. And when I wrote it, I was completely heartbroken. Like, you know, three years of therapy's worth of heartbreak. And I said, yes, thank you. Uh, <laughs> It wasn't you, was it? <laughs> and I suppose that I wanted to spend some time with the life of a man whose life was even more of a mess than mine was. <laughs> well, seriously, because he was a, you know, it was a fucking car crash, his life. And um, I just thought there was something I wanted to explore about losing and defeat and getting it wrong over and over again. You, see, you know that phrase, the, the definition of madness is doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting a different result. That's Patrick Hamilton's life. He falls in love with the same sort of person over and over again. If you read his letters to his brother, Bruce, he's perpetually saying, I've conquered it, I'm not gonna drink again. It's all sorted now. Oh, I'm living this wonderful life. I have porridge every day. And two weeks later, he's back on the booze. And of course, if you know anything about him, you know that what killed him was that he was drinking three bottles of whiskey a day. I suppose I thought also that as I looked at it, because elements of my life are a bit similar to his, <laughs> or were, I got into quite a mess, and I thought, you know, there but for the grace of God might have gone I. I kept making the wrong choices and creating drama and chaos and being far too driven by my ego and my soul. And I had to sort of wake up, really, and start to live a better life. And so at that point, I was doing a lot of self-reflection, and I looked at this life that went a different path, and its sorry end. And in playing him, I was sort of thinking, yeah, I'm really glad I didn't end up like that, actually. And I think there's something very informative and salutary about, for me, about performing that for an audience and seeing how they respond to it. I think a lot of people can look at the way he lived, the mistakes he made, and recognise aspects of themselves in it. I mean, that's what art is. In terms of Hangover Square as well, uh, 
who, who girl who broke my heart was worrying like Netta from Michael Square. And so that kind of drew me to him as well. I, I, I know that thing of becoming hopelessly obsessed with someone who is never going to be able to give you back the things that you're really looking for in life, which is real intimacy and compassion and honesty. Um, and so, yeah, the, the whole thing was a, a learning process for me as an actor, as a writer, but much more importantly as a, as a human being. You know, I've been speaking to people just tonight, wandering around the room and talking about all the things that happen in Hangover Square, and people kind of look wistfully into the distance, and you can tell it's happened to them, or something like that. That's what draws people. It's probably why many of you are here tonight in some way. You know, so your, your reaction to Hamilton and to Hangover Square must have some similarity with my own. So um, I also, I must say, that because... It's really important to remember that he's extremely funny. He's a very, very funny writer, and he's funniest because he's so honest and truthful and so bleak. That's why I wrote about Quentin Crisp as well, because he too said, you know, oh, life, it's a complete nightmare. You know, that I find something very cleansing and uplifting about saying that. Quite recently, I performed my show about him at the King's Head in Islington, and at the end of it, rather like I'm doing now, I have a big drink and, you know, it's symbolic of him drinking himself to death. The lights go down and there's complete silence and it's like, oh, fuck, he's dead. And somebody on the front row, just that thing where people suddenly acquire courage, and he said, I found that really uplifting. And I was so pleased he said that because that was actually my intention. I mean, as I was saying to Deck earlier, I mean, my mum doesn't like my play because she finds it too dark and she doesn't like me being dark. She doesn't, even as an actor, she doesn't like to see me playing dark, it unsettles her. And God, her favourite singer is Cliff Richard, come on. <laughs> you see what I've had to work with? And, uh, but I think looking at the darkness, looking at the shadows in life is tremendously uplifting. It can change you and develop you. And I'm sure that's why we're all drawn to darkness and fascinated by it, because there are big parts of it within ourselves, and we want to explore that. Um, and I think there is, if you go through all of that, something very uplifting. Uh, and I think he's very funny. And I also see him as quite a sort of lost, frightened little boy, which I think is an element in all men. And so I, I learned to really love him. I felt very sorry for him. But he had a good life as well, in some ways. You know, he was colossally successful and fabulously rich. What he made of that success and that money was rather unfortunate, but he had his day in the sun, so I didn't feel too sorry for him. But I felt, I felt compassion for him by the end of it. I was never blind to the sort of not particularly nice things he did with his life, and he, I think he was a tremendous bastard to his brother. But I did feel for him, I really did, and in the same way that George Harvey Bone in Hangover Square is a mur double murderer, I think. And yet, at the end of it, I think, oh no, <laughs> poor man, you know. Um, so, yeah, it's been quite a journey of discovery, and I think you always learn something from reading Patrick. And I was intrigued by the phrase, the London Vortex, sort of reading about your work. And I wonder if you just uh, elaborate a little on what that means, and how Hangover Square, and Patrick's other work, sort of ties into that idea. Uh, it's the title of a course that I put together, which is a course about literary modernism. 
And what I was trying to do when I assembled the reading for it was to go outside of the canonical authors that are normally associated with modernism, so um, Eliot and Joyce and the, the major figures, and, and try and think of you know, more interesting, unusual, forgotten writers. The word vortex comes from the vorticists, who were three First World War group of artists um, and writers in London who did this phenomenally avant-garde magazine Blast um, and all sorts of interesting work that then was curtailed by the First World War. So I, uh, I didn't begin with them. I began with looking at anarchists and anarchy at the turn of the century, then the vorticists, then the bright young things. Um, so Aldous Huxley was in there, but also a book called The Green Hat by Michael Arlen, which also is a film that's a, a fascinating kind of parallel to what Huxley was doing. And then after the bright young things came the miserable young things um, in the 1930s, and this was Hamilton with his trilogy, uh, 20,000 Streets Under the Stars, which is a wonderful... Sky, sorry. Sky. A wonderful um, trilogy that I think helps to explain Hanover Square um, in some of the obsessions that, that Hamilton brings to that novel. So his obsession with the prostitute Jenny, um, who is the great unrequited love of that book, just like Netta London is the unrequited love of Henry Bone. And I think one of um, Hamilton's, maybe the, maybe, what gives him the most pleasure, really, for such a miserable person, is the torture of unrequited love. And, you know, the way he portrays these women is quite fascinating in his insight into their nastiness um, through the dialogue, through the dialogue. So I know that with Jenny, it is Jenny, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, Jenny. <laughs> with Jenny, this was based on letters that he received from a prostitute called Lily Connolly, a real girl that he was in love with um, and was quite disdainful of him. Um, and if you've seen the TV adaptation, which is really, really good, I think you, that gives you a, a, a good sense um, of this novel, unlike the film of this novel, which has really got nothing to do with it at all. So yes, that's that, and, and talking of George Henry Bone, who is a murderer, but he's a murderer that you just feel totally sympathetic with, and to, we're, we're kind of pleased by the time he ends up killing Netta, which he does, so that's the plot spoiler, but um, if you haven't read it, then shame on you. So, he, yeah, there's so much to say about Hamilton, but that's why I put, oh, and the, what, why is he a modernist? Because I think what he brings to the novel is not just a reworking of form and language. He puts in there content that hadn't been really seen in novels before in quite the same way. So, yes, of course, you've had the underbelly of life and, and, and low life, but not quite in the way that Hamilton does it. And in a similar way to his female equivalent, Jean Rhys, I think, another great undersung novelist of the 30s, less so now, but for years we've been saying, oh, Hamilton is, is forgotten, no one reads him anymore, but in, in the last 10 years, I think people really actually do read him. I mean, I studied this novel on a degree course about 12 years ago, and then that was really unusual, but I've been teaching it now for three or four years, and I, I don't think I'm alone in that, and I think there's more critical work being done on him in literary terms. Anyway, so my London Vortex then goes on into the 40s with some Blitz novels, and then it stops. 
because after that, modernism becomes something else. So Declan, you're a poet. I wondered uh, what your response to the book was in terms of Hamilton as a stylist, his use of, of language and literary techniques. I didn't read it on a course or anything. I just found it in a in a bookshop, and I liked the title. And, you know, mm-hmm. I'm sort of yeah, <laughs> <laughs> quite easily swayed. I find. But um, I think the thing that really gripped me, I, t- I sort of knew I'd like it because it was you know despair filled. But then yeah, there, there's that passage where he's he's on a train to London. I think I think it, I'll just see if I can find it because it's such a lovely. It, it just sort of reminds me of that you know the bit in Nabokov um, at the beginning you know Lolita where he's running over the name, and there's that bit where he. He just has this kind of litany, it's like a little hymn to Netta, and he just goes, Netta, Net, Netta, a perfectly commonplace name. In fact, if it did not happen to belong to her, and if he did not happen to adore her, a dull, if not rather stupid and revolting name, entirely unromantic, spinsterish, mean, like Ethel or Minnie. But because it was hers, look what had gone and happened to it. He could not utter it, whisper it, think of it without intoxication, without dizziness, without anguish. It was incredibly, inconceivably lovely, as incredibly and inconceivably lovely as herself. It was unthinkable that she could have been called anything else. It was overloaded with voluptuous yet subtle intimations of her personality. Netta, the tangled net of her hair, the dark net, the brunette, the net in which she was caught, netted, nettles, the wicked poison nettles from which had been brewed the potion which was in his blood, stinging nettles. She stung and wounded him with words from her red mouth. Nets, fishing nets, mermaids' nets, bewitchment, sirens, the unearthly beauty of the sea, net, nest, to nestle. It's what to nestle against her, rest, breast, in her net, netter. You could go on like that forever, all the way back to London. And that bit, you kind of, I don't know, I think, I mean, obviously, I'm like Mark, um, I've only ever been happy enough, but, um, <laughs> but, um, but you can see that kind of obsession that someone like Mark could have in her. And, um, and imagine that that would ring true. And so I think, um, yeah, I think, you know, that, that idea of running over it and that, that thing of kind of, he has to curtail himself and that kind of, I think at that point it's quite early in the book and you just think, yeah, all right, okay, this is, this is interesting, you know, um, that kind of obsessional thing. I think he writes really well about obsession um, and obviously, you know, the language is part of that and I think there's so many recurring sort of poetic images, um, not to be a, a bell end, but, um, but he, he keeps talking about um, Netta's kind of violets and primroses in the rain and that, that keeps coming back and... There are certain things that he kind of, he almost develops a little, a bit like that is a kind of litany, you know, he develops this kind of sim- symbolism of, of Netta, and she's, it's the shorthand, you know, she's, she's primroses, and she's violets, and she's, and then there's also this sort of mad dream to kind of go away and raise chickens, and you know, it's this weird kind of, um, such a weird, kind of, you know, a little symbolic life that he builds around this, this woman who he doesn't, you know, he doesn't know at all, and who is horrible in every possible way, but, um, but yeah, so I think I think that's really interesting. But I think the other thing I like about the language is the fact that it's got that kind of just that natural speech. You know, it's, I think it's really hard. I, I've never written, you know, prose really, but um, I think it's it's hard to do dialogue. You know, everyone I, I know who writes novels, they say it's really difficult. Um, I'm sure you know Mark will have a lot of experience from writing, you know, plays because that's you know so much dialogue. But I think to capture someone's actual speaking voice is really difficult without sounding, you know, really forced or really strange, but you just, you get the pub talk, you get that atmosphere, and I think, I think that's really impressive, you know, um, and because you can tell, you know, that's observed and it's lived, and it's, he's someone who's, you know, just spent a life in pubs listening, and, you know, observing, and, and he's so much of that world, it's not just a personal thing, it's also that whole circle around him, you know, these people who just are sort of spinning around this 
sort of life of you know getting up and drinking through the day, and it's just it, he captures that really well, I think. Yeah, so I think yeah, just the language of that is it's quite plain. It's simple. He's not you know he's not kind of stylist in that sense, but it feels very lived. And I mean, I'm a real sucker for kind of stuff that sounds like someone speaking. I think he's brilliant at that. I think sort of leaning into that as well. There's a, a really interesting thing about the, the phases that George goes through, where the click and the shutter comes down, and you get his internal monologue through a lot of the book, where he's living his essentially normal life and he has a particular internal voice. And yet, when the shutter comes down, the voice changes within the same character, doesn't it? Yeah, no, no it does. I mean, I think the way I've always read that, um, that kind of switch, I don't, I don't think, I mean, I'm no expert, God love me, but um, I don't think it's, he's particularly interested in the kind of the pathology of that kind of, because I mean, you know, the word schizophrenia is kind of kicked around. It's not, you know, it's not schizophrenia, it's kind of what it reminds me the most of is, you know when you get really pissed, and then the next day you kind of, you just have that horror, oh my, what have I done, you know, have I let myself down terribly? And um, I think that's sort of, the dead mood is that sense of, you know, he, there's no control there, and he has to kind of trust that it will, you know, be okay till the next time when he's himself, and I think, yeah, I, that's kind of what it reminds me of, you know, you kind of, if you do have a, you know, a kind of, a sort of session, you know, you have to sort of trust yourself to get yourself home, and you're kind of like a different person. Um, and so I think that's that's how I've always read it, rather than this kind of particularly medical condition. It feels more like that kind of drinker's remorse thing to me. I don't know about other people. I think so too. I think it's it's also like a plot device maybe that allows um, George Henry Bone to be the opposite to what he is when he's you know in his less drunken state, maybe not his sober state, but. Yeah, and in fact, when Emily asked us to pick out our favourite, she said, oh, pick out a favourite bit from the novel. I picked exactly the same bit about Netta's name, and that it's so poetic and beautiful, and, and linguistic, you know, he he's a, clearly loves language, and every every chapter has an epigraph that, that often there from Roger's thesaurus, where he takes a word and he looks at every different possible other word that he could use, and he just revels in that use of language. And also, he's situating himself within a literary tradition that looks right back to Byron and to other poets whom he quotes and to Samson and Delilah. And, and so he's, he's putting his contemporary tale of London's netherworld into, into a literary tradition as well. Well, on that passage, yeah, no, I, I've lived that. I've lived that. The person I was talking about, I just saw her initials on cards everywhere I went two years, uh, every car just seemed to have their initials on it, and fuck, it's a sign, we're meant to be together. No, they're not. Um, but you, yeah, people do, do get obsessed, and uh, it's usually because the other person represents something within yourself that you've not dealt with. And that's what I think that this, this schizophrenia or drunkenness or splitting off is all about. It's because he's riven, split, right down the middle. He's not a whole person. And so there's no integrity or core to him. And that's why he gets into these terrible messes and he's constantly looking outside of himself for salvation. He can't really look at himself properly. Um, and that's his, his problem. I mean, it's, it's the classic split thing. It's, you know, uh, Jekyll and Hyde or Norman Bates or all that kind of stuff where the person is two completely different identities. 
and it's totally wrong-footing and disconcerting to say that. And I think sometimes we need those myths to look at in terms of fiction or cinema to make us see the parts of ourselves that are split and where we need to wake up and the bits of ourselves that we haven't owned properly and stop, for fuck's sake, looking outside of yourself for someone else who you think possesses those. Can you tell I've had therapy? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's what it's all about. The curious thing for me is that all of this happened to me and then I discovered... Uh, no, sorry, the wrong way around. I discovered Hamilton and then a lot of this shit happened to me. So it's very, very strange how it worked like that and how he came into my life. Um, I feel very differently about it all now. I sort of look on all of this as a slightly more disinterested, not uninterested, but a disinterested spectator. But I still find it fascinating. And I also think, how did, how did one person, A, get so terribly messed up, and B, be able to write about it? I mean, so much of his stuff, it's a postcard from the edge. Incredible. No surprise that he was dead at 58. No surprise at all. And on that cheery note... <laughs> well, just to go back to the passage of Beckman Red, I mean, it's a, a wonderful ramble, as you say, but there is almost... It's almost bookended by the murder scene at the end where he does net everything. And, and even then, it, so it's a lovely sort of visual play on this verbal play from the start, but there's also a bit where he just goes netter net. And it just punctuates the whole, the whole sequence. In terms of the voice that comes during the, the dead mood. So I think the thing that struck me was it's it's George and possibly any character in the book at their most chipper and most happy. It's almost a sing-song voice that's sort of like, where am I? What am I doing? Oh, that's right, I've got these things, so I must kill, I must kill Letter. Oh, I'm Peter, I must kill Peter. It's all, there's a sort of sing-song rhythm to it, which I think really sort of nails the fact that there's a huge element of, of black comedy to the book, um, even including the very last lines, I would, I would yeah. say, really sort of, it made me sort of revisit the whole book, those last lines, I was like, there was a lot more comedy here, so I sort of reread it with that in mind. Is, is that common in his other books? Would you say this is the most blackly comic, or is, does he balance that out across his other works? I would say there's certainly a lot of comedy in 20,000 Streets Under the Sky, where he uses his comic capitals, but capital K, capital K, um, for conversation in cliches. He, you know, he listens to conversations and he hears the cliches that people talk to each other in, and he's quite merciless in the way that he parodies these types in the pub wars and the people that... And, it, and it's very amusing to read that too, so... There's perhaps less comedy in Hanover Square, but you certainly you feel so much sympathy towards Bone in, in a way that you perhaps wouldn't to Norman Bates. Or you, he engages you um, with with his plight, really, and you're really rooting for him, and you want her to answer the phone or answer the door and be nice to him, and you know. And and then the worst bit is when he think when he finally meets an old friend because he's so essentially lonely and he. He meets his old friend and they get on really well. And then the part where he thinks that that Netta has gone off with him is heartbreaking. And then the resolution to that is really uplifting and fun. And you know when he finds it wasn't true. And then after that, the murder is just like, oh well, that's a, you know at least he's had some happiness finally. 
I mean, that's a bit off the point of comedy, but... Um... Well, I was also going to say there's also that, that sequence where he goes back to Earl's Court and he meets the young man who's just in one scene. They just meet in the pub. Oh, yes. And he's yes. a pleasant person. Yes. And there's this horrible yes. thing where all the way through you're like, this, yeah. maybe he doesn't have to do this. Yeah. And then the final line in that sequence is, yeah. he never saw George Orwell again. Yeah. And you're like, oh, right, this is, this is where it's going. But it's also that horrible thing of... You know, Johnny, his old friend, says it when he first sees Peter, and he's like, he's falling over the bad crowd. Exactly. And you just sort of get this horrible feeling of, and it's quite cruel almost to have having put through so much, sort of go, maybe we could have met this guy first. Yeah. They'd have had a great time. And with both of them, you get the outsider's point of view who's looking at Netta and Peter and all those horrible people and seeing them as horrible people in a way that you, the reader, do, but Bowden doesn't. And, and so you get the different perspectives, which again is quite a modernist literary yeah. ploy. <laughs> so there, there, there's lots of stuff that he's doing with... Um... Oh, the other thing is melodrama and theatre, because of course he was a playwright and he, he writes those melodramatic plays, and I think that really affects the plotting of this as well. And melodrama can be quite funny because it has such stereotypical goodies and baddies that make us laugh. Yeah, well, the, the only thing that just, I'm glad that occurred to me is that in my uh, play about Patrick. I do a big bit on Hangover Square and I play George's suicide letter as a speech to the audience. <laughs> it's a cheery play. He says in that, he says the line, he says, Dear Sir, I'm taking my life. I thought it would be all right if I came here to Maidenhead. Always gets a laugh. <laughs> Everyone roars at that and it's, it's the black comedy and the, the, the sadness and the futility of it and the the provinciality of it. I was just saying earlier to uh, to Deck that you know we were talking about why is Patrick Hamilton not better known, and for me it's because he only wrote, he only wrote five good novels. I think he actually wrote sort of eleven or something, but I think only five of them are not blasted by inexperience or booze. And you know, as I was saying earlier, I know Ian Forster wrote only five novels, and he's much better known, but I guess there's something very, very provincial about Hamilton. He never wrote his version of A Passage to India, it was more like A Passage to Streatham, and uh, he, you know, he, he, there's a very localised uh, focus to his work, and his, if you read, there's a letter he wrote to his brother Bruce about when Patrick went to France. <laughs> <laughs> How much he hated France, and the food is muck, and the coffee is disgusting, and I'm sure they all talk English behind our backs. And you know, he was so uh, provincial, Patrick, and so he's never going to be huge. I mean, he to me, there's a huge confluence between his work or a lineage between his work and with Mel and I, which is not going to be everyone's cup of tea, but people who like it, as I do, kind of worship it. But it's so small, and it's a sort of fag end of a movie that it's never going to be huge, but you know, people who really like it and people who like Patrick do get it and don't find it miserable. I, I once watched With Mel I in a cinema with this uh, friend of mine and she turned to me at the end and she said, oh, I thought it was awful, it was just so sad and I've just been roaring my head off, you know. And I think if you, if you get Patrick, you find it funny. I think there is a lot of humour in his work. It is because it's honest and honesty is always, always funny. In terms of the book as a, a London novel, I sort of went into it with that idea in mind. And I think the thing that struck me is I didn't find it 
around and over. I know it's sort of, you know, huge parts of it are set in, in Earl's Court and Hangover Square refers to that. But I found it interesting that, for me, the major sort of points of action happen outside of London. The two trips to Brighton are his lowest point and his highest point. And it's all about him, you know, his plan for Netta, when he's not in a dead mood, is to go out to London and start a chicken farm. When he's in a dead mood, it's kill Netta and get to Maidenhead. Yeah. It, was, it seems to be all about not being in London. I just wondered how, how other people found that. Well, yeah, no, I, th I, think, um, I think there's definitely, the whole, the whole thing is kind of based on escape in some ways. But I think it's also, it's kind of, it's interesting. I, mean, I, I, I sort of hadn't read it for years, and I reread it, and it's, I don't know, it felt like a much more political novel than I kind of remembered it being, really. Maybe it's partly just sort of the time that you read something. But, and it's, you know, so much of it is about, you know, this idea of appeasement. You know, the Neville Chamberlain, Harold Chamberlain, one of the Chamberlains, they keep, you know, it keeps coming up, that kind of peace in our time thing. And, the idea that, you know, Netta becomes that version of kind of fascism. Obviously he's a you know communist as well, he's kind of anti-fascist. And that idea of sort of appeasing someone and letting it go and and that, as Mark said earlier, he's this kind of he's not an active person in his own life, you know, he's kind of sort of a victim of the you know forces around him. And I think in that whole sense London becomes another version of this sort of fascism, you know, it's something that's doing things to him. And you know it's never going to happen. He's never going to escape. Just as he's not going to escape and go to Maidenhead, he's not going to escape his life of drinking, and, and he's not going to escape Netta's kind of orbit of, you know, mag magneticism or whatever it is. You know, um, just all of these things. He's he's trapped, and he's kind of he's someone who things are done to. And I think it's it's really interesting that it kind of plays out in that period as well. You know, this idea that there's this voice the whole time, sort of saying, you know, don't let these people do this to you. You know, you have to do something. You have to be an active, and he can't. You know. He, he sort of just gets pushed to the side of his own life, and, and it's awful, you know. And I think in the same way, just London is another oppressive thing, you know. It's like, I think it's it's like solitude. He's got that that thing about London being like a monster that kind of sucks you in and out again. And I think that sort of hangs over this um, this book as well. The idea that it's kind of a beast, you know. And you're kind of just caught up in it in the same way that you know the characters are caught up in history, and you know they they don't feel particularly able to do anything on their own behalf. Most of all, you know, they're all kind of aspiring to things that they're not going to get. Like Netta wants to meet, you know, um, casters and all that. You know, they're just all they're sort of reaching for something that they're not going to get. And I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's a weird thing. Um, and it is, you know, it, London becomes this horrible net again. You know, it's another one of these traps. I think. I don't know. Yeah, you're right. Not all of it is in London, which I think is why I put the other, the other Hamilton trilogy on my syllabus, because that was more specifically London. But I think what Hamilton does, although he is, he is, I mean, he came from, he grew up in Brighton and Hove, and so that was familiar to him, and he would constantly go back there for holidays. And, and so he is essentially provincial, like you say, but I think history and the backdrop to the 30s brings the world to London so there are these constant references to what's going on in the newspapers what, what's being advertised at the cinema and there is the backdrop of fascism which is, you know the, the Netta and Peter are types and they're fascist types and, and Bone stands for the opposite of that which is compassion and love and sympathy and those things and so there's and I suppose that the, the action that he finds is in violence at the end, and that, that's the action of war, and, and, and how you beat fascism is through violence. Um, so maybe, maybe that's why we don't mind the murder so much, or, or you know, it's, it's one of those few texts that can, that can draw you into the mind of a murderer 
and and you're right, you know, you don't feel bad about that, weird as that might sound. Um, and it and you know the 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 way I said that the, the split screen personality is a device that, that affects that quite cleverly really. He he compares that to a a film become a talkie becoming a silent or a colour going black and white or that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, so London is 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 central, pivotal maybe. Some people call Brighton the West End on sea, don't they? It's not that far away. Just just going back to your point about melodrama earlier and the, the sort of balance between the characters in the book. Hamilton uses the, the impending war basically to put George firmly on the right side of history, doesn't he? Sort of, he, he turns, and it, for me it felt a bit clunky, just it, it, I don't feel these people will be engaged at all with the world. They seem far too far, and possibly Peter, because you can imagine him, he seems like such a vapid character, he would attach himself to anything that could give him, but, but it just seems quite intrusive in the book when you have these people who are just drifting, and then suddenly they have very strong feelings on Munich. And, and I, I thought it was a way, it certainly builds, you know, the divide between the characters. But as I think in a melodramatic way, which, as, as I say again, is possibly intentional with, with Hamilton's other techniques. And as you say as well, in terms of softening the blow of the murder, he couldn't do more to sell Peter and that was deserving victims. Uh, Peter has killed himself and not only feels ashamed about it, takes pride in it. And it's one of the things Netta likes about him. He does as much as he can to sort of build these characters up as terrible people. And I think it's his own politics coming through. Um, he was strongly Marxist and had strong communist sympathies, and, and, and they led him to oppose fascism and oppose appeasement as well. Um, and so uh, he uses a, he uses the characters as a political mouthpiece for that moment. The other thing he does is, um, I think, in some of his work, later work as well. He was, critics wanted him to perhaps explain the psychology of a criminal, his later criminals rather, maybe more so, but he does try and do that with Netta, doesn't he? You yeah. Know, he does try and explain um, the attraction of Netta is her beauty, and that's made very clear and insisted upon. She's utterly beautiful, but then what's inside is... Uh, you could read that bit out, actually, maybe. Good, if I could find it. I can find it, because I marked it as well. But it, it will help people yeah. to understand how, you know, how he how he has this most attractive person who's actually really, really unappealing. Is this the bit about the fish? Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's quite an important bit, though, because it's the only bit you kind of, you get a little insight into her psychology. The rest of the time, she's this kind of cipher, isn't she? But then there's this moment where, oh, yeah, yeah. And he precedes it by Byron's poem, She Walks in Beauty, yeah. so... And then it says, Her thoughts, however, resemble those of a fish, something seen floating in a tank, brooding, self-absorbed, frigid, moving solemnly forward to its object, or veering slowly sideways without fully conscious motivation. She'd been born, apparently, without any natural predilection towards thought or action, and the circumstances of her early life had seemed to render both unnecessary. Spoiled from the earliest days because of her physical beauty, made a fuss of, given into, beset with favours. The fulfilment of her desires going ahead at roughly the same pace as her conception, she had become totally impassive. Thought and action were atrophied. Having no inherent generosity, as George perceived, having no instinct to spoil or make a fuss of anything in return, she had become like a fish. But it's important, I think, because 
the rest of the time you only see her through that. I mean, obviously later on there's there are other people who. I mean, all of all of George's mates who meet her just say she's a terrible bitch. Um, but I think. They all make that. Oh point. yeah, lovely bitch, but <laughs> awful. Um, but I think it's important that we do at least get a moment of of kind of seeing this kind of. I mean, it's not objective because you know obviously the narrator is involved, but there is a moment where we do at least see this kind of unfiltered version of her. And I think if if it didn't have that little passage, it would be much more. I don't know. There's, there's more voyeurism, I think, in that. If if you don't have that moment, because obviously later on, then yeah, other people. There's these kind of objective witnesses, isn't there? There's the guy in the pub who he meets once who says, you know, she's alright. And then um, the mates who meet her are all just, yeah, she's horrible. Yeah. Um, but I think it's, it's good to have that brief moment in the flat when she's just on her own and she's clearly sort of reprehensible. I think it's the, um, it's the banality of evil. I, I don't think there's, a, there's anything there. One of, the, one of the hardest experiences or rites of emotional passage I've had in my life is just accepting that there are people who are horrible. They just are. When Hamilton looks at Netta, or, or George Harvey Bone looks at Netta, he nails it. He says her, externally, Netta was beautiful. Her thoughts, however, resembled those of a fish. Something seen floating in a tank, brooding, self-absorbed. There's nothing there. There's nothing there except just pure take. And, you know, because George is sort of pure almost to the point of soppiness, you know, there's sympathy and kindness and decency and it's very common in life, I think, for the two to be attractive because they have the thing that the other one lacks. It's always doomed and disastrous, but it happens. And I don't think there's a lot more that he could or needs to say about why Nessa is the way she is. She just is. You're never going to change her. You're not going to alter her. She doesn't see other people as anything other than objects to gratify herself. Um, and in a way, by making it so simple and stark, I think the characterization is, is very real. I sort of take Steve's point that they're types, Netta and Peter, you know, and Peter's even got this sort of twiddly Victorian villain moustache and all of that. But for some reason, it's not bad writing. I can't tell you why that is. Because I'm not Patrick Hamilton and I can't write as well as he does. But he somehow takes types and turns them into archetypes. And I think that's great writing. Are there any, anyone in the panel who would like to make a point or ask a question to the panel? I'm quite interested in who kind of wanted him. Who's reading it? Who kind of wanted him to kill Meta? <laughs> 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 oh, am I mean that that would mean is sort of destruction? Um, but I'm quite interested in the kind of more sadistic people who were. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want him to, I just could understand why he wanted to. I guess from that point of wanting to, I think there is there not in the sort of split mood idea that he doesn't want to kill Netta. He decides not to kill Netta, that she doesn't matter. And then he's finally sort of, in, uh, it's been a while since I've read the book. Just trying to remember the chronology again. But it doesn't he sort of decide that this is okay. I've met these people who are actually nice and I'm finally in a place where I don't have to kill Netta. And then I think the ultimate the ultimate sadness of the book is that that he decides not to but goes into a dead mood anyway and then wakes up in Maidenhead with two dead people and you know, he gas himself. And I, and I, it, I mean, that's, 
for, for me anyway, where, where the ultimate sadness of the thing comes from. Yeah. I think though, by the time he'd, he'd got to that happy point in Brighton at the theatre with the actors and everybody mm. making a fuss of him and, and he discovered that they, they didn't like her, but by that point he'd gone through such a lot of psychic mm. trauma that it just flipped him anyway, and by then it was too late. That's, I reread it a few weeks ago and already it's a little bit hazy, you know, I remember that, so that, that's how I read it. I think it's also, it, it's very much presented as compulsion rather than any sort of logical decision he makes. When the dead mood comes down, it's the, the voice says it, as I say, so, so skippily, so happily, and so matter-of-factly. There's no question of, oh, I must because this, he's just, I, this is what I must do, and then I do this. It's very much a stage, so I do this, I do this, I go to Maidenhead. That's the, and that's the thing. And there is that, again, it's something that he, he sort of dwells on a lot across the book, and then just nails at the end where he goes to Maidenhead and immediately he's like, well, this isn't going to work. And again, it's not a thing of, logically, it's not going to work because of this or this or this. It's just a realisation, the only possible response is it's not going to work. And that's the, 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 the tragedy of it. He's a, a complete victim of his own circumstance. There's no sort of logical thing where he's like, I guess I've got to. He's like, just got to. Well, it's so bold, it's like by the second page, we kind of get the book plotted out for us. And there's that, that additional sort of poignant thing that the, the, the book opens on Christmas Day. He's just walking alone, it's Christmas Day, and it's, it's melancholy, but suddenly it just becomes a completely different thing. I'm just interested in what you said, that you said you were not in favour of him. I know you are, and I'm just chatting at you. Um, okay, yeah, but... What he said that you, you said that you weren't in favour of him killing Netta, but because you knew it was going to lead to his demise, sort of. Because I'm interested in it tapping into all of our nasties that we hide away, and actually there are people we probably all quite want to kill. So if you could get away with it, and if it was not going to lead to your demise, like. I don't know, I just think it's really interesting to go into that bit of it because you seem to be like on his side apart from if you were going to get caught. I just, I think that his future is so easy. <laughs> <laughs> his demise is so um, inevitable if he, if he chooses that direction. Really, you just want him to be happy, don't you? And yeah. that horrible, tantalising, passive in sort of way, is happy and he's got the cats and he's really ridiculous. <laughs> He's reading Dickens and you see the possibility of happiness, but he's drawn back. Well, while I'm very next to the mic, this is a real pragmatic question. I wondered if there are any upcoming productions, performances, plans of your uplifting Hamilton show? No. <laughs> I find that answer not very uplifting at all. Good. I, I've done it on and off for about 18 months. Uh, and I was doing it at the King's Head in Islington recently. You know, the, the, you were just talking about the Christmas, it's set on Christmas Day. I mean, that is Patrick Hamilton. He is the ultimate person who opened his Christmas presents and went, oh. <laughs> and all of his books are about that, one way or another. They're about the fact that life seems to offer so much and then, oh. Uh, it's not there, and that's worse. It's like a, uh, to him, it's a sort of torment or a torture. 
Um, and we can all relate to that. You know, you talk to anyone, if you could, just at the end of their life, and they'd say, well, yeah. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I remember I, I once had one of my very rare, really frank conversations with my mum, and she said to me, she did that sort of looking into the middle distance thing, and she said, I would say that men have caused a great deal of suffering in my life. <laughs> she wasn't even talking about me. Uh, she, what she, she was talking about her stepfather and she was talking about her husband. Um, and, but she just said it without any self-pity, it was just a fact. And, and that, that is what life is, it is really, really tough. It's great and fun and fabulous, but a lot of it involves grinding disappointment. And that's why people like Hancock and Steptoe and all of these things, you know, it's like, oh. Really? Really? You know, which is most people's response to life. And um, this is a long way of saying that I'm a bit of a pessimist, in this, or a realist, I should say, in the sense that every time I've finished doing, performing the show, I think, that's it, I'll never do it again, you know, and then the phone rings. And I'm sure it will happen at some point next year. Um, but I have done it about 60 times now, which is a long life for a solo show. So. But thank you for asking. I'm sure, I'm sure it will happen. I thought just to wind things up, uh, and this is a bit of an ambush on the panel, but I'll go first to give you a chance. Um, just to sort of give a bit of momentum coming away from this, if there's a book that you'd recommend if someone enjoyed this, or possibly as a way to sort of uplift themselves having read it. I, I spotted uh, Christmas at Cold Comfort Farm in a charity shop last week for 50p, and I love Cold Comfort Farm and hadn't read any of the others. So I grabbed that and then just sort of starting on that now. Not as a reaction to this, but it certainly appealed because there's very few double murders, I think. Um, I haven't got through it yet, but we'll see. Um, so yeah, just, or possibly even just what you're reading now. Possibly something just to sort of give people a bit more to look at. Uh, not much of a reader, pal. Um, <laughs> no, um, it's rubbish. Yeah, it's terrible. Um, no, I've not read it, actually, but um, I, I told someone today, he's not, he's not come, but I told someone that, um, <laughs> I was doing the thing about Hangover Square, and he, um, he said there's a book called Scamp, I can't remember the author, but apparently it's very good. What's it it's called? essentially a scamp. Yeah, it's maybe very good. So, um, yeah, no, as I said, not as a reader. We can crowdsource, does anyone know who wrote Scamp? Is it possible you made, made up a, a book? It could well have done. He's done this. We'll crowdsource it and get an answer. Rolling Camden. There we go. There we go. Thank you. Rolling Camden. But that's apparently a bit like this, but good. And, yeah. Have you read it? Yes, very good. Recommended. Any double murders? Uh, no. <laughs> what date is it? Um, Jen, yeah, I think it's 40s. 40s. And Julian McLaren Ross as well. These are all yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, well, my recommendation would be a novel that I picked up in Brighton one time in a second-hand shop called Loving by Henry Green. So Henry Green is another undersung modernist writer of the 30s and 40s who, who wrote some wonderful books, um, all with one-word titles. But Loving is perhaps my favourite of those. And, and yeah, Or Jean Rhys with Morning Midnight as the female... Uh, equivalent of Hamilton in that dark downness and and enjoyable reading. Does anybody know who Eckhart Tolle is? Yes. 
Fuck me, that's a, that's a, a, that's a low turnout. Right, seriously, this is an urgent shout-out. Um, Eckhart Tolle is a German guy who, um, you know, had this sort of, yeah, had this sort of miserable life, and then one day I felt so suicidal, and I, I had this terrible sort of blackout, like George Obi done, and I woke up, and the world seemed a different place. It was a better place. And he went through this whole transformation where he, as he sees it, he overcame his ego and he became his soul. So I think there is a lot of truth in what he says, that you are either an ego or a soul. And you decide which of those you're operating out of. And every day you have to make that choice. And he wrote a book which is quite well known called The Power of Now, which is a, it's non-fiction, it's, it's just about how to live in the present moment and how to do all of the things that Patrick Hamilton and all of his characters can't do, which is why their lives are a fucking car crash. Um, but then he wrote a sequel to that book called uh, A New Earth, and that is my heartfelt recommendation to every single one of you. A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle. You read it, and you'll go, oh, that's why we keep fucking up the planet and making a mess of our lives. It really explains so much about what goes wrong and how you can do it better. Um, and um, it's also the only book that I've ever got to the end of and immediately went back to page one and started again. That's my tip. We're going to uh, wind things up there and get ready for the screening. Um, thank you to the Genesis Cinema for hosting it tonight. Thank you to Frontlist Backlist for putting this together. Um, thanks for everyone for coming out and thanks to our panellists for uh, being brilliant. This show is a Holdfast Network production. Go to holdfastnetwork.com for other programs you may enjoy.